and welcome to The Boarding Pass with Ken Weeb and myself, Murata Tesh, where we talk about all things Winnipeg Jets. This week in Jetsland, we have the signing of a high-scoring OHL defenseman in Declan Chisholm to talk about the Jets' planes against Calgary. We also have some very powerful words by Jets' captain, Blake Wheeler. Wheeler has been speaking out against racism in hockey and society at large since the weekend, inspired in part by his former teammate Evander Kane. To that end, uh, we have uh, a very exciting guest who's worked with Evander Kane on some very impactful writing this week as well. We'll get to him in just a second, but I got to throw it to Ken as always. Ken, how are you this week so far? Uh, personally, Murad, I'm uh, I'm doing excellent. I've uh, been getting my morning walks in and feeling healthy and invigorated, but uh, it's been a tough week for sure. I've been very conflicted at times and proud to see the way there's been responses and there have been times where it's been tough to be part of the human race that needs to be a whole lot better. So um, sort of balancing those two things, but uh, very encouraged to have a great conversation about a very important subject with, uh, with a good friend of both of us. Yeah, absolutely. Ryan Clark, welcome to the podcast. Um, our man in... Yeah, um, I, I, we were reflecting just before you came on that Ken and I met you at the same time in Denver uh, when we were both there, Ken with the Sun and, and myself with the Athletic covering uh, Jets Avalanche and what a good time it was to go out for lunch since then. Um, please be honest, tell us you remember us fondly from those days. Yeah, I remember taking you guys to the Cherry Cricket and Ken ordered a burger. I think it was like with some kind of like barbecue jam on it. And he had like this look like he had just discovered fire. Like he didn't learn about it in grade one. And, you know, he was just kind of like, oh, this burger, like it's so amazing. Cause like I love Kid, but our guy, you know, when he, he feels something, he gets like introspective about it. And he's like, you know, this, this burger feels great. And we're just like, yes, Ken, we know. And you're like, no, you don't understand the texture. It's like, yes, Ken, we know. And you're like, it's like if God, I'm like, yes, Ken, I know. I live here. I go to this place all the time. I'm messing with them. But no, it was it was a fun time. And I mean, I always enjoy seeing you guys. And I always love coming up there. Because I mean, when I lived in Fargo, we would go to Winnipeg for fun. And um, I love that city. It's great. And I I don't know. I try to give my opinion on too many things. But like whenever people go like, oh, well, I don't know if I'd want to go there or hang out there. It's like, well, it's a great place. And the people are great. And yeah, I, I love it there. So I just always love seeing you guys. I always love coming up there because it's just, it's a cool spot. Right on, Ryan. I mean, obviously it's an emotional time. I mean, how are you and your wife holding up? Um, I'm trying to how I want to answer that just because it's one of those things where I've said to people, you're part angry, you're part numb because you're angry this has happened. You're disappointed this has happened and you know it's going to keep happening, which is why you feel numb. And at the same time, you realize you're numb knowing that this is going to happen again in four weeks. And with us, it's such a different conversation because I'm in an interracial marriage. My wife is white. I'm black and Hispanic. And there have been conversations we've been having for years that the world is now having at large. But then there are conversations that are new that we're having that some people may or may not be having. So, I mean, it's... It's it's been an interesting time, so that's really I think the best way to describe it. If I can ask, how are you two doing? 
just trying to keep up with uh, with things um, and trying to have conversations that maybe um, weren't forefront uh, about uh, of mind in terms of how we can be better within the framework of society. I think I, I took a lot from from Blake Wheeler yesterday talking about. I mean, he doesn't always talk about family things, but I, I think he volunteered an example of of talking to his his seven year old son about racism at home and how difficult that was, and how his son kept asking, you know, why isn't that officer taking his knee off of George Floyd's neck, and how difficult that is. That's not something Blake Wheeler talks about, but it's so symbolically important of the fact that things start like social change in any of these situations starts within and it starts at home and, and things like that. So for me, I'm, I'm trying to stay abreast of, of positive examples like that, that then I can translate into real life um, actions within myself and in my circle. But it's, it, it's, it's tough and it's tough to, to read those things and, and, even the very, very frank conversations in your work as well. Anyway, that's that's not no, that's okay. I mean, I, to either. Same for me. I mean, like I said, I'm a I'm a glass fifteenth, uh, sixteenth full kind of person. I'm a very positive person by nature, but uh, quite frankly, part of me is embarrassed for the way society has acted for a very long time, and uh, I hope that um, some change and some real change uh, is is upon us uh, i'm proud of the way that um blake wheeler shared a, a part of his life that quite frankly is nobody's business um but for a private person to pull back the curtain and talk about why it's important to have that conversation with your seven-year-old son uh, i hope that some people can learn from that. And it's part of the process that, that is being discussed at large about the importance of education and learning and asking questions and not being afraid to have your, your voice heard. And so for me, like I said, I, it's a balance between being proud of some of the things that are being said, but also quite frankly, being embarrassed to, for parts of what things uh, have been happening. And I mean, Ryan, I shared with shared this with you personally, as well as I did with uh, uh, our friends uh, you know, throughout the company, but especially the hockey writers that we know personally, and Eric Stevens and uh, and Tarek, uh, about how proud I was of you for being willing to share your personal stories from what I can only imagine were both difficult and infuriating times. I'm embarrassed for the public at large that you had to go through that, but I'm also grateful for your role in the education process as people work to prevent those type of occurrences from happening moving forward. I, mean, I, I appreciate you saying that. And, you know, I think the thing is this. For those wondering what Ken is talking about at The Athletic, a number of us who are black staff writers decided to share this is what it means to be black in America. And the story I shared was how when I was living in Fargo, I was the Minnesota high school reporter because Fargo, of course, is right on the border of, of Minnesota with Minnesota, North Dakota. And I was driving back from an assignment in a company car. It was the first time I ever drove it at night. And it's a Subaru station wagon where you, you turn the knob to turn on the lights. We did turn it one more time for the rear lights to work. I get pulled over and license registration. Of course, that's pretty normal. And then it was, let me see your press pass. Okay, there you go. Well, I also want to see 
uh, if you have a business card, which I did, and I nearly had to call my editor uh, to talk about this, to, to, to verify this police officer, excuse me, that I was indeed a reporter and not someone who just stole a, a beat up super station wagon with a giant crack down the middle of, of the windshield. And so this happened and I remember calling a coworker because it's not, how do I say this? It wasn't the first time I've had an interaction with a police officer when I was just kind of going about my everyday life. But it was the first time I'd ever been pulled over. And oddly enough, it was living in Minnesota, North Dakota. I got pulled over more there than I have anywhere else I've lived since. And I called a coworker to talk about this. And this person and I talked about it for two and a half hours. And that coworker is now my wife. And it was kind of the introduction to her of this is what life is like. This is something you have to worry about in our marriage. Um, granted, at the time we didn't know we were getting married, but we knew we were definitely going to start dating. But this is just the introduction to it. So that's just, it's a story that I look back now and I don't really get angry about it because I've kind of had that time to process it. But I think it's just more about the idea of if you share something like that, you hope people learn from it. But also if you share something like that, be aware for people to pick it apart and say, well, of course a cop would stop you. Your lights weren't on. And why wouldn't he ask for your press pass? And why wouldn't you have to show a business card? And so what if you have to call your boss to show that, you know, this is a company car and it's like, but understand how often does that happen? So it's, it's just things like that, where I think that's the difficult part of the conversation is people look at racism and we don't look at racism like cancer, where cancer is a straightforward, no one cheers for cancer. Everybody wants to fight cancer. With race, it is a contrarian issue. There are people who either think it's not an issue, not a big deal, or they just don't like people who are different than them for whatever those reasons may be. And in order, I think, sometimes for people to have that conversation, there has to be the understanding that this is the landscape you're doing it on. So hope that wasn't like too long of an answer, but I think it's just, it's about providing context in these situations because it seems like right now that's kind of the thing everybody is wanting to talk about and further understand is, yes, understanding why there's an issue, but the context of how we got there seems to be something people are more intrigued by now than you could say maybe in a long time, if ever. One of the things that I take away from that series of stories, because yours is one of several voices of, of black writers at The Athletic who all have similar stories that seem ubiquitous. And it, it seems to me that elevating these in, in terms of their sort of sharing these stories to make sure that more people and, and, and people of the majority are reading them as well is important. And I always think about it's so hard for someone like me, um, a, a, a white person, to see things that don't happen to me how do you see what's not there right and I, I i liken it um i don't know what ken would think about this i think you're the only glasses wearer among us but i liken it to you're wearing glasses over the course of a couple of days or a couple of weeks they get progressively smudgier you don't really notice that they're getting smudgier but then one day you you, you wipe them on your shirt or you clean them with the proper cloth and you look through them again and you realize like hey all of that stuff that I was just looking through a second ago is gone. And it's like you can finally perceive the absence of something in a way, in a, in a reverse way. So 
I mean, I don't, I can only imagine how hard it was to tap into that well yet again to, to share those sorts of things um, a, as a group and, and be elevated again. Um, I'm wondering, uh, Ryan, did, uh, did you get that sense of fatigue or anything like that when you spoke to someone like Evander Kane, who um, has been speaking out against racism in hockey for a long time, but it seems like now um, more people are listening to him than I think uh, have ever done in the past. No, I mean, really, the, the sense I got from talking about Vander Kane, and it's something I've said before, is just measured. It seems like it's sort of the perfect word because it's a conversation about race, but it's a conversation where what you say is going to be amplified. It's going to be scrutinized. It's going to be championed. It's going to whatever. Either way, it's going to invoke emotion. And when you're talking about a subject like this, that for so long he has discussed that some may not have felt like it was worth discussing. You know that whenever you talk to people who want to listen, you have to be, I think, I, how do I put this? I think you have to have this sort of mentality of everything has to be explained from nuance to whatever. Like you can't take a word or a sentence off. And there wasn't this feeling of unrest or frustration of why is he talking about this? It was just more of the idea of what more can be done to ensure this conversation continues to happen. That there's strength in numbers in realizing, look, LeBron James has been talking about this issue for years. You think about when he was with the Miami Heat and what they did by wearing hoodies for a team photo after Trayvon Martin had passed away, well, died, killed in Sanford, Florida, which was in their state about four and a half to five hours away. And with that, you have this man who is one of the most well-known figures, not athletes, figures in the world, but his voice alone is not enough. And that was Kane's point is, yes, this is how we got here. This is what it's like to be black in this league. This is what it means to speak out, knowing that you can't be wrapped up in what other people think. But it takes more than just one or two people. It takes multiple to help make a change happen. And if anything, that was the message he got across. Having covered uh, Vander since the Jets returned, I mean, I'd like to share that I'm incredibly proud of how he's handling uh, the situation and, and being a voice and showing leadership and maturity um i mean this is a guy who yes i i've always told people and whenever he was traded uh i mentioned quick to mention that he he's an engaging person um when he was when he wanted to be engaged so i mean he didn't always see eye to eye with people in the media and he was a bit of a lightning rod at times in the community but here's a guy that is showing incredible growth i mean unfairly or not, Evander has been known as for being a little bit selfish at times, but now he has put the greater good. He's showing so much leadership right now. I think it's it's outstanding to see him out there knowing that he has a platform and and the importance of sharing that message. And, and I hope that people continue to follow. Uh, Ryan, my follow-up question, I love that Blake Wheeler showed that he was vulnerable and, and showed remorse in not getting involved or having his voice heard sooner how do more athletes 
get to that point where they're comfortable sharing and and how do they make the cause resonate for them? I mean, obviously Blake had talked about it, it had been something that had been on his mind for a long time, but when something as horrific happens in his in in a person's community, they might look at things a little bit more differently. How, how do we get more players to look at the societal view rather than just something that might have happened in their own community? It appears it goes back to the idea it's a personal choice to do that because it goes back to something you said at the beginning of this program, Ken, in the sense of with Blake Wheeler, he shared a part of his life that he didn't necessarily have to do, and that's just it. It's the idea that people have the choice to do it or not to do it because there are players you talk to and had a chance to speak with one this morning about this issue. And the player I spoke to is someone who is in support of what's going on. This person is someone that he and I have talked about race for years now. And his whole thing is, it's the challenge between wanting to speak up and in running the risk of you're just only doing this because it's a conversation when this has been an issue this person has cared about for years, it's just something that that person did not vocalize. And that's probably the challenge every player is looking at right now who's thinking about saying something is everybody's situation is different, whether they've thought about this for years, months, the last five days, whatever the case may be, it really comes down and goes back to what are you comfortable sharing and honestly, vulnerability. That was a conversation Brian Boyle and I had for the story that ran on Wednesday where I talked to four white NHL players, Tyler Sagan, Brian Boyle, Morgan Riley, and Connor Carrick. And that word, vulnerable, kept coming up because you are putting yourself out there for the masses. And you are allowing people to get inside your mind and your thoughts and your feelings. And they're going to judge you. They're going to judge you on a really serious, sensitive, critical subject right now subject that's been like that for a while, which we'll get into here in a sec. So if athletes want to do it, it has to be with the understanding that it's something they want to do. And what's interesting, and I'll wrap this up, is it's all about the climate right now. So you have fans or, or people who follow sports in general saying, why isn't the NHL and its players taking a more active role? Why have they waited so long? And why have they remained silent? Well, here's the thing. Compare them to the other leagues. Major League Baseball's had Jackie Robinson and Kurt Flood, a black man who was the first free agent and spoke his mind at a time when people weren't really trying to hear what black men had to say. It's a league that has seen an influx of Spanish-speaking players from Cuba, Colombia, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, and it's taken them decades to figure out. We might need to have translators so they can speak with media, because when you look at the NL East alone, it's two biggest rising stars, if not outright stars in general, or Ronald Acuna and Juan Soto. Then you move to the NFL, which every six months there's a conversation about race in some capacity, whether it's the Rooney Rule, Colin Kaepernick, uh, the latest proposal to improve a team's draft standing if they have minorities in a front office capacity. So it's, it's there. It's been there. Even going back to conversations about can black people only play certain positions or better yet, can white people only play certain positions because for the longest time it's white guys can't be cornerbacks and running backs and arguably the best running back in football right now is a white guy in Christian McCaffrey whereas if you look at the NBA this has always been a discussion 
Look at Donald Sterling, the fact that he was kicked out of the league. And look at the fact that as of this morning, the Knicks had not released a statement. And that's not sitting well with people because you're in New York. You're the largest market. And also, it's a league that's made this a priority. Yes, the NHL had Willie O'Ree. And that's not something to dismiss. But beyond that, there's never really been this conversation. Because remember, for four or five years, Jerome McGinley was the face of the NHL. And rarely, if ever, did you really hear a national or better yet international conversation about what this could mean for diversity going forward. You've seen it with prospects like Seth Jones when they were coming up. You're hearing some of it now pre-COVID with Quentin Byfield. But beyond that, it's always these horror moments with Akeem Alou or Wayne Simmons or Keandre Miller or whatever black player is the subject of what's going on this time. And so this is a league that has never had to deal with it. And so when you look at it like that, the NHL is having to play catch-up to the rest of the field. And that context needs to be provided. Does that, in your mind, make the role of the white allies within the context of the NHL more important? And also, uh, to add a second component, not just uh, not just white players within the NHL, like, like a Blake Wheeler or a Mark Shifley, but... Um, us as reporters, when people, you, you mentioned people get vulnerable to talk about racism, you know, there's a certain amount of empathy that perhaps we could show in terms of presenting context and clarity and not skewering people for tripping and saying the wrong thing if their intentions are good. What, where, what is the role of the hockey ally in a situation like this? It's, it's hard to say because in some ways, is it more about the hockey ally or just doing the right thing as a human being, regardless of what your profession might be. But as it relates to this sport, the more players I've talked to, the more everybody said either this is a white sport or it's predominantly white or I didn't grow up in communities of, of diversity and this is just kind of how their upbringing was and it's allowed them to be reflective. It's like anything, when someone realizes there's an issue, they want to do whatever they can to solve it knowing, while it's great you feel this way now, don't think that the actions of the immediate are going to resurrect the issues of the past in an expedient manner. It's still going to be there. As for reporters, it's really interesting because our industry, and it's safe to say, loves to be self-indulgent, even more so since the advent of social media. And what's fascinating is people saying or commentating about, well, I can't believe this was an issue and how could they let this slide and they have to be better and we as journalists are going to hold them more accountable. Look in your newsroom. I'm willing to bet the only black thing there is the ink you print on. What are you doing in making sure that you cover communities of color? You're hiring people of color. What have you done to raise these issues in the past? If you're going to sit here and talk about an athlete and their ability to not have this thing handled perfectly, then the question people need to be asking themselves is, did you have a handle on this beforehand? Did you ever think to ask these questions? If you are covering a Vander Kane in Winnipeg and a racial incident, a racist incident happens, are you going with Blake Wheeler instead and not just a Vander Kane? Are you talking to whoever else was on the roster? Why is it always on the black player to sit there and have to answer these questions? Well, it's because, you know, it's, it, it, you know, you know, but, you know, and it's just like, no, I don't know. Please explain it. 
And that's where the disconnect lies. And when you think about all of this, that's really been the most intriguing part of how this has been understood is what is the next step? And it's the realization everybody has work to do. No one is perfect in trying to understand how this works or how we got here, but it's about how you fix it. And in the sense of what players, executives, media, whomever's associated with it, it's that. And it goes back to just this philosophy that occurred for several years. And Marat, I know you've heard me say it a lot because of how much we talk, but in order to be the smartest person in the room, must first realize you're not. And that's what it is. I thought I uh, watched Matt Dumba on a roundtable uh, talk sort of around along those lines, Ryan, by, by saying that I understand a lot of people may not be comfortable and they don't want to say the wrong thing. But Matt's point was it's better to say something and maybe put your, and run the risk of maybe putting your foot in, or your foot in your mouth as long as it's coming from the heart and from the right place. I mean, how do we get people to feel more comfortable weighing in uh, when they know sometimes the best thing that you can do is, is listen and then take action? It's hard to say because, again, it goes back to the comfort level of what people want to do to put themselves out there. And everybody comes to that point at their own realization. So let's take Tyler Sagan as an example. You know, Tyler Sagan talked about the fact that, yes, he saw what happened to George Floyd. But he went and did research and looked into how this has been an issue. And not that he's the first one to say, oh, I get it 100%. But he understands more than he did before and realizes there's an obligation he now has to not only just talk about this change, but be about it. And he gave examples of how, like, look, these are things I've done in the past and I'll continue to do. But more needs to be done. Here's some ideas. And it's a start. And so in terms of how players get there, it's like anything. It's, it's their own personal choice. And it's not that this issue is being lessened, I hope, with this, comp- this comparison. But everybody in this sport talks so much about development. In the sense of you draft an 18-year-old or a 17-year-old with the hopes that by 21 or 22, best case scenario, they're Connor McDavid, Nathan McKinnon, Sidney Crosby. Worst case scenario... Their 50-point score, but as this league has clearly shown, you can be 22 in a first-round pick. If you haven't hit certain metrics, you're a bust. And that's just it. We talk about development from a player perspective in the sense of your skill set, but there's also development that needs to happen when it comes to being able to speak out about these issues. Like, how many times do you see an 18-year-old or a 17-year-old come straight into any sport and just have everything figured out and dominated. No, it takes time. It's just with something like this, you're not going to necessarily see the growth in month. It may take years, decades. Who's to say? It just it all depends on what that person's comfort level is and how they feel like accepting that task. I just need to take a moment to share that uh, in terms of sharing stories, uh, Kevin Weeks a uh, goaltender from Toronto, a black goaltender with a, a long 348-game uh, NHL career, uh, has opened up to Pierre Lebrun and Scott Burnside on the Two Man Advantage podcast this week. And uh, the conversation that they had was 
truly worth checking out and, and listening to this week. So listeners out there, I just want you all to be aware that you can get Kevin Weeks on the Two Man Advantage podcast this week. Um, Ryan, I want to ask you about the quote that you ended uh, that story with, the one that you were just talking about where, um, you know, why now? Why are, why are white NHLers speaking now? And in it, Brian Boyle references Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, and he says that he explained racism in America. This is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, as quoted by, by Boyle. Um, and he says that he explained racism in America. It's like dust in the air. You can be choking on it and not even see it. It's only when the light comes in is when you see it. People can change, and if they cannot, you have to accept that these are not responsible behaviors. You have to wake up every day deciding that you yourself has to be the one to treat the has to be the one to treat people the way you would like to be treated. Why did you end with uh, with that? That's a powerful, powerful uh, series of words. But what spoke to you about that to be the last thing that we take away from that piece? I think you kind of answered it right there. It's. It's about perspective and understanding this is where you started, this is where you are, and in some ways this is where you'd like to go before it's all said and done. And not only that, but like talking to Brian Boyle, which that was the fascinating part, is he was really introspective the entire time during the interview. In the sense of he's like, you know, I didn't have any black kids in my classroom fourth to eighth grade, eighth grade. And I had two black teammates at BC and one of them was really quiet. And now that I think about it, was it because he felt like he couldn't be himself? It's that sort of thought where once he started going, he started talking. He took it in such a retrospective, introspective way that he was able to advance the conversation and do it in the sense of, this is how he's already seen the change. And that was kind of the most intriguing part in all of this is you had four men who brought it these different perspectives, but that's just it. It was this different perspective. Like Tyler Sagan is like this aggressive, I've done this, I've done this, and I want to do more. Brian Boyle wants to do more, but he wants to look back at how did I, how did we get in this situation? What do I, what do we need to do? to be better? What do I, what do we need to do to make sure that we don't let this happen again? With Connor Carrick, there was this rawness of, I grew up in Vancouver. I grew up in Orland Park. And this is what life was like. And then to see these videos, which he said he couldn't even watch George uh, Floyd. He watched Ahmaud Arbery. He talked about how this was predatorial. How this was Something he could never envision another human being doing to another human being. And how for him it just resonated. Whereas if you look at Morgan Riley, it was kind of all of the above. There was a raw honesty. There was a forthrightness. There was a feeling of, yes, I grew up around diversity. This is something my parents taught me to value. But even now I'm having dinner with my mom and my dad. And we're still talking about this. And he was straight up with, this is a cause that needs our support. And I'm going to do it. No questions asked. And I don't care what anyone says. And so when you're writing a story like that, where there's so many voices and they're all saying 
really important, powerful things. It's about what's the best placement to make sure everybody's heard from equally, but how they feel gets across to where it's, yes, there are four guys who agree on the same cause, but this is how it's different sides of the pie, so to say. And when you look at that Boyle quote, the hope was it kind of encapsulated what everyone had to say, which hopefully it did. It really did. And I mean, it brings you back to the the quote that brings you into the story, the accountability moment where more people need to have that accountability moment that Tyler Sagan talked about. And I'll be perfectly honest, Ryan. I mean, I, I had been very reluctant and hesitant to watch the video, but after I read your story and saw Connor's words about it, I sat down and watched the video. It's disturbing and excruciating and but it was something I needed to see. And I watched the Killer Mike video and to hear him speak with such incredible passion and and still keep a handle on the situation. I mean, people need to watch these things to know how it impacts people in other communities. And I wonder what it's gonna take for these deep conversations to be happening more in locker rooms, on planes, in hotels, at team dinners? And is the league at a point where player they'll allow players to wear the I can't breathe shirts or warm-up jerseys or whatever else? I just wonder what the next steps in the actions that are required are, are going to head. Figuring that out is going to be such a tall order, Ken, because there's so many options you can go with. But at the same time, how do you find something that you feel is unique that necessarily isn't taking what someone else has done and just saying this is our offering towards addressing that issue and as far as what teams do and how they go it's so different because you look at every market and they come with their own set of unique challenges so if you're in south florida because home for me i mean you three know this or i, I say three because of our producer of course but I mean, a home for me is a mix between Toronto, the East Coast, and South Florida. I go to Toronto on vacation every year. It's a second home, and it's a place that I've come to know quite well. But let's look at those three places. South Florida has a history in the sense of the Daylin Mall shootings. Uh, El Mariel. It's had issues with how does it work in areas that while there's complete and opulent wealth, there are parts where it's just, it's drug infested. And while you see diversity in both, you see more shade one toward the other. New York, there's too many examples to name, whether it be Central Park Five, whether it be other incidents we've seen, just even in Central Park with Amy Cooper is another one. Whereas if you look at Toronto, and Toronto's had its issues, but it seems like over the last seven to 10 years, which you can equate that rise to whatever being, is it sports that made more people aware of Toronto? Is it Drake? Is it whatever? People have gone like, wow, I had no idea Toronto was this diverse. Yeah, no kidding. I think we all kind of know that Toronto's diverse. But if you're going to address it in each of those markets, like how do you address it? Do you look at something that's uniform, that works for the league, or do you tailor it to your environment? And that's the thing teams have got to sit there and determine. 
But it's more than just like saying you're going to do something. It's how do you act on it? Because what's really going to be fascinating, gentlemen, is you're going to now try to see a league figure out how this make how to make this work. And you're going to have fans of color or just observers of color who might be skeptical of will this league and its teams and its players get it because it's not been talked about before. And the last thing I'll add is this. Craig Cussins and I had that, had this discussion on, on his podcast as well because everyone's like, hey, come on the podcast. We're like, okay, sure. Um, even though, like, Marat owes me money. I'm kidding. Not really. But the point is... It goes back to the fact that this is a league that when you look at its programming on NHL Network in America and all these other shows they have throughout the United States and Canada, the program is always like light and airy and fun and like we're going to have a blast. This is not fun. This is not light. This is extremely dark and heavy. And is that really a direction this league is ready to explore? That's what they've got to figure out. I can't remember which athlete said it on the TSN roundtable that Blake Wheeler was a part of, but it was to the effect that if this was comfortable, it would already be fixed, and that discomfort is an important road to go down. It's the only one to go down to fix systemic uh, systemic issues. Um, I got to pivot a moment, and one of the things that we're very lucky at with at The Athletic, is that we'll have somebody like Craig Custins, who is an NHL insider based out of Michigan, um, has been covering the league for years. We have Pierre Lebrun, uh, who has just been covering the return to play and the shutdown um, on an NHL insider basis, day-to-day news and updates. But we're also uh, a locally focused uh, sports journalism platform. So we have somebody like Ryan Clark, who you've heard from today, who is the best person to talk to about Colorado Avalanche hockey. You have Ken Weeb in Winnipeg. Nobody, no journalist has covered the Winnipeg Jets this era for longer than Ken has. And that's the case in all of our cities across the NHL. Um, the majority of our listeners here at the boarding pass are right here in Winnipeg, in the Winnipeg market. Um, and f- as a message to advertisers, if you're, a local business owner and and you're in a situation through the shutdown and other sorts of struggles going on right now where you're in a position to advertise and you want to get your message out to local audiences in Winnipeg and in Manitoba. Our listeners are very loyal, very engaged, just like you are committed to the city of Winnipeg and the province of Manitoba. If you would like to advertise on this show, just go to www.theathletic.com slash podcast ads there you can fill out it's a very simple form and we'll get back to you right away go to www.theathletic.com slash podcast ads today and in that spiel i mentioned there's nobody better to talk to about the colorado avalanche than our man right here ryan clark We had Craig Button of TSN on the podcast last week, and he said that Winnipeg's play-in opponent, the Calgary Flames, went through some serious soul-searching after playing against the Colorado Avalanche in the playoffs last year. No one played the Flames better or shut them down better than the Avalanche did. And I'm wondering if I can tap you for some insight on the hockey side of things. Um, What was it that Colorado did so well? What were your takeaways from that series at the time? 
I think the most interesting part of it in retrospect was the fact the Avalanche were 0-4 against the Flames, and they were some of the most trying games they played all year. The one that sticks out was they're up 4-2 in Calgary. It looks like they're going to win. They lose 6-4. And it was probably the, the most notable collapse they'd had that season. Whereas if you look at what they did, they just kind of ridden this momentum of backdooring their way into the playoffs. No one really knew what to expect. And what they did against the Flames so well, especially after game one, is one, they took away space from guys like Johnny Gaudreau. The second thing they were able to do is they were able to use their line combinations in situational sequences that really allowed them to either be at even or maybe slightly above, depending on your situations, when it came to matchups. But then, you know, the third thing is this. It was all the that worked, but it was seeing certain individuals. Like, you saw Philip Grubauer continue what he did in the late regular season into that first round. You saw Miko Rontanen and Nathan McKinnon and Gabriel Landeskog and Tyson Berry really just control play in the sense of offensive production. You looked at what defensemen like Ian Cole and Eric Johnson were able to do when they were paired in a shutdown role against skaters like Gaudreau, what Carl Soderberg and Matt Line and him and Matt Calvert and Matt Nieto did. And then, of course, there was Kale McCarr and his arrival, which was not only more defensive depth, but you have someone who can move the puck and be another weapon. And that's just what it was. Is Everybody did what they needed to do within the system. It's just the individuals and what makes them strong. It's shown through. And that's what they were able to do. Ryan, as, as somebody who's watched him from that playoff time throughout the season, I know there's some trophy debate going on these days. Uh, where do you stand in the Kale McCarr versus Quinn Hughes debate? And, and maybe take it from there. Don't really have much of an opinion on it, to be honest with you, in the sense of like who should win or this and that. Because, look, let's face it, there's a lot of teams that would look at Kale McCarr and Quinn Hughes and go flip a coin, we'll be happy with either one. But really, more than anything, it's just kind of been this conversation about who should win this award, which it's understandable. But it also just kind of makes you wonder more of a big picture standpoint of just, okay, are defensemen about to go through a really interesting period where you're going to see more of these exciting young puck movers? You have those two. You have Adam Fox. You have uh, Rasmus Delene who can do it. I mean, Mira Heisman's not a puck mover per se, of course. But he has the ability to do it. You look at Sam Gerrard, another guy here. I mean, you've got players who are young and talented on the back end who can make things happen. But just with those two, it's just been really, really interesting to see in the sense of what they've done to get there. But as far as, like, figuring out who's better, I mean, for every metric that you say this is what makes Quinn Hughes stand out, there's another metric that you can use for Gail McCarr. And what it comes back to is this. They are both going to be really good in the way their two teams are trending. It wouldn't be surprising if the Avalanche and Canucks end up being a, a really familiar playoff series for the next seven to ten seasons. Ryan, it is a distinct pleasure to hear you talk about important life issues as well as hockey issues as well. Um, in, in the interest of time, I want to ask... Uh, you, you've done such tremendous work all season long, but some of the most important has been recently. Is there anything you want to plug out there? Anything in particular that you want to draw readers' attention to uh, that, that you've worked on of late? As far as stories, no, but I will say this, and hopefully it doesn't sound too preachy, but everybody's having this conversation now. But remember, are you going to have this conversation in two months, 
six months, a year, three, five years from now. And that's just it is we're having this discussion now because it's a relevant and timely subject. But at the same time, it's, are you going to continue to have this discussion? So I think if there's any, I guess, grand big takeaway, I know we talked about what are stories, but really, while the stories and the people in them are important, the message they're trying to get across is just simply, this is a start. How do you make it continue? And that's probably the biggest takeaway from all this right now is it's starting. What's going to be done to move it along? Well said, good sir. Um, look, on behalf of Ken and myself, I just want to say a huge thank you for taking the time in the middle of what I know is a busy day. You mentioned talking to uh, an athlete, uh, you know, at length for, for, for more work yet. And I know that that's going to be a, a big story to come as well. Um, thank you for being so articulate and passionate uh, to the point where, um, you know, I, I hope listeners got so much out of, of the podcast this week. Thanks for being on, Ryan. Hey, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Ken, it's always a pleasure to talk to, to Ryan Clark about uh, about anything. And at a time like this, it's I feel very important for us to um, to engage with him and listen to what he has to say. And I, I love how articulate and passionate he is about everything uh, from that burger that he referenced <laughs> eating at the beginning to hockey issues as well. Um, yeah, I mean, what more can we say than that? I uh, love the guy. Yeah, that was awesome insight. And again, it's a, it's a deep topic and one that, as Ryan mentioned, uh, it needs to be continued to, to be discussed. And um, got to be better as a society and one race, the human race. I mean, let, let's stand up for each other and, and try to make the world a better place as best we can. Right on. And looking within and at things that we have control over as well. I, I, so many different powerful things. I actually can't wait to listen to this just to catch all of Ryan's words again, to be completely honest. Um, look, we, we, we had a, a, a ton of Jets news this week as well, but we're short for time. So Declan Chisholm uh, has been signed. You wrote about that. I want to make sure everybody knows to, to read the story on Declan Chisholm and how uh, how you, you kind of perceive his path might be going forward. That's an important one to plug. We just had Blake Wheeler speak to media at length, uh, and you know I was able to get a story up about that yesterday as well that I would hope people are reading. Uh, Ken, what else do we have to hit here uh, and let our listeners go on with uh, with their days? Yeah, no, no doubt. We've been, I mean, bigger issues than hockey right now, obviously. But uh, before the week is out, I'll have a, a piece, uh, a far too early look at five storylines for for Jets and Flames that should be dropping on either Thursday or Friday. So, uh, I mean, like I said, as tough as it was to talk about hockey these days, uh, like Blake Wheeler mentioned in his conference call, I mean, part of the responsibility, and I mean, one of the things we've noticed uh, in terms of feedback is. We've been able to help provide a release for for some folks during an extraordinary and challenging time. So, uh, if talking about and writing about hockey uh, can be part of that, uh, we're glad for the folks who have taken the time to uh, both read and continuing to support our product, uh, as we take a lot of pride in that as well. Hundred percent, well said, my man. Yeah, and you know, to those listening right now, to those that read, that to those that are following, if hockey's your outlet, and uh, thank you for being along for the ride. We know there are bigger issues in the world than sports uh, but uh, sport is a part of society and we're, we're happy to provide as much insight into it as as we can uh, once again thank you so much to our listeners thanks for being out there um, this has been the boarding pass thank you for listening